0: What's up y'all, this is John Laurence with Anesthesia Guidebook. It's February 2nd, 2022, and I just got back from the Idaho Association of Nurse Anesthetists Winter Meeting at Silver Mountain. I want to give a huge shout out to Jonathan Coteen, Bruce Harding, Caroline Merritt, and the rest of the team with the Idaho Association for hosting a fantastic conference and inviting me out to present along with my good buddy, Matt Zender. And y'all know I got to give a huge shout out to all the SRNAs who showed up in force from Gonzaga University. University, and that is Gonzaga. Not Zaga, Gonzaga. It's the Zags, y'all. They had me straightened out by the end of the weekend, so thank you so much. It was so much fun to see y'all at the conference, and I want to wish you the absolute best as you continue hammering in your DNAP program. You're on the path, and it's totally worth all the hard work that you're going to put in. Remember your power pose and keep hammering. All right, so I originally recorded this interview with Ian Hewitt back in February of 2015, a full seven years ago. I was still an SRNA at WCU, uh, Western Carolina University, and Ian was one of my professors and clinical preceptors. Dr. Hewitt is now the program director of Western Carolina University's Doctor of Nursing Practice, or DNP, Program in Nursing Anesthesia. At the time of this interview, Ian had been a CRNA for 20 years, was an assistant professor in WCU's nurse anesthesia program, held two master's degrees, one in sociology, the other in anesthesia, and was enrolled in a PhD program at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. He has since completed his PhD, which is in health services research with a dissertation on economics and billing practices in anesthesiology. This episode is an excellent introduction and overview of billing and economics in anesthesiology. We discuss the difference in billing models such as medical direction, medical supervision, and independent practice in the United States. We talk about the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act of 1982 and how TEFRA, again that's the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act, requirements influence reimbursement in anesthesia practices. We go over opt-out and what that means. How in nearly half of all states, CRNAs are not required to have supervision by any physician, podiatrist, or dentist in order to bill directly for their services. We discuss how market forces such as an evolving payer mix can influence decisions on billing models and practice structure for anesthesia groups, hospitals, and individual providers. We also discuss the challenge of studying big data and establishing differences in quality outcomes between CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists. We talk about the future of anesthesia economics and concrete steps healthcare organizations and providers can take to lower cost and maximize efficiency while maintaining high-quality outcomes. If you want the inside scoop on economics and anesthesiology, start with this podcast. I hope to get Dr. Hewer back on the show in the future to go deeper into some of these topics. You can find his dissertation on economics and anesthesiology at the link in the show notes. I'll also mention here that Western Carolina University is likely opening their bridge program for master's prepared CRNAs to obtain their DNP in the summer of 2022. So if any of you master's prepared CRNAs out there are looking for a DNP program, keep WCU on your radar. And one last note, remember, I recorded this episode when I was still in SRNA in training. I think I mislabeled the Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act as TERFA in the show, but it's actually TEFRA right? Tax Equity and Fiscal Responsibility Act. Anyway, my understanding of these issues has certainly deepened and evolved over the last seven years. And I would say that for any anesthesia provider or hospital administrator or elected government official, anyone who's involved in decision-making around healthcare, if you want to understand the why behind how anesthesia practice is structured in the U.S. and where it may go from here, this episode is a great place to start. And with that, let's get to the show. So Ian, thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Tell us a little bit about your background um, as an anesthesia provider and an educator.
1: Okay, sure. You'll probably tell. I'm from England, and I graduated from nursing school in the UK back in 86. Came to the U.S. soon after that, and spent about seven years as an RN before going to anesthesia school in California. I've been an anesthetist since 1995, worked, uh, most of my career has been in clinical practice, worked in big hospitals, small rural hospitals, done all kinds of anesthesia, OB, pediatrics, cardiac. Uh, So I've had a pretty wide ranging experience. And then about uh, three years ago, I took a job part-time faculty here at Western Carolina. And uh, this summer, last summer, transitioned into a full-time position as assistant director of the program. So I guess you could say my, my background is largely clinical and fairly recently with education. Uh, Through my career, I've always been very interested in politics and economics, and so when I decided to go back to school for my doctoral studies, I actually am taking a PhD at the University of North Carolina in Charlotte in health services research, so there's not many CRNAs in that field, but really it's a field that looks at, spends a lot of time looking at data analysis. If you like, it's the big data field that people talk about a lot nowadays, and my interest from the beginning of my studies has been in trying to figure out if we can compare anesthesia team models operating in a very loosely supervised situation, which is uh, the clinical practice I've been used to for most of my career, versus uh, what you might call medical direction, a very tight supervision. So I've been interested in looking, and I'm now working on my dissertation, in if we can compare those two models and see if the outcomes are the same, which I suspect there will be, if we can see that then perhaps we can move forward economically by a more cost-efficient model that's my background
0: excellent give us a basic overview of the anesthesia care models in the us and maybe a little bit about how those came to be okay sure so
1: basically we're talking about anesthesia care team models there's either medical direction medical supervision is the main two models now what we're starting to see nowadays is there's also another kind of team care model which actually doesn't look like a team care model when you look at the billing paperwork because they bill for the crna working independently so let me explain that in a little bit more detail so the main model the medical team model gives medical direction and what that means is a physician can supervise up to four nurse anesthetists the physician receives for each individual case 50 percent of the total charge and the anesthetist doing the case receives the other 50 percent of the charge So basically, for each case, 100% of the fee goes to the group if they're working together. The problem with that model, and we'll see why in a few moments, is there are many regulations associated with it. Many people have heard of the TEFRA regulations, which were developed in the 80s, (laughs) 80s, <laughs> or maybe 90s, uh, the TEFRA regulations, which have seven rules, which include things like being present for induction, uh, appropriate post-op examination, uh, being available c- during critical incidents. There are many rules that the anesthesiologist are required to meet, which makes it more difficult for them to have looser ratios. The tighter the ratios, in other words, this, the less number of nurse anesthetists each physician is directing, the less money is made by the physician for his group. So that's an issue. So from the economic point of view, the physician always wants to maintain the maximum ratio if possible, one to four, because that will increase the income of the group. But that's difficult from the uh, medical regulation point of view from the TEFRA standpoint. Mm -hmm. Another model is the medical supervision model. This is a model that's very rarely used. So this is a model that allows the physician to have much looser supervision requirements so they don't have to meet all the seven TEFRA requirements However, the problem with this model is it's economically unfeasible. And the reason for that is for each case, the CRNA still gets 50% like they do in a medical direction model. But the anesthesiologist only receives a few units, they don't receive the 50% of the case. So they're going to make less money for each individual case. They can't get an extra unit of pay if they're present on induction, if they're not present they don't get that unit. But basically, they're gonna receive less money overall for each case, so the only way they can increase their, their income is by supervising a lot of cases. Uh, the problem with supervising a lot of cases, I'm talking maybe six to eight anesthetists, is it makes them more vulnerable because they're not involved in the case in any great extent, but they're perhaps responsible because they're signing on to each case. Right. So when we look at the billing data, we see that model is extremely rarely used across the US. There's also, these are not team models, but I just want to mention that you can have an anesthesiologist working alone. They get 100% of the bill. You can have a CRNA working alone, which is a so-called QZ billing code. They get 100% of the bill. So what about this other team I was talking about? Well, what we've seen in recent years is a lot of uh, anesthesia groups are saying, I can't make enough money supervising one to two or one to three anesthetists. I need to maximize my ratios at one to four, perhaps even one to five in order to make the same income from my group and pay the salaries of my physician partners, perhaps my CRNAs if I employ CRNAs. What if I allow the CRNAs to bill in a QZ model? In other words, the CRNA is billing as an independent provider, but we still operate on the surface as a team care provider. So it looks exactly the same as a medical direction model, but what it means is the physician doesn't have to be present for every induction, they don't have to be present for every instant, they don't have to meet those seven requirements. So it allows the physician group a lot of flexibility on meeting regulations and less vulnerability to audit by CMS. Why is this important? Because most of the billing in the last five years, and certainly it's going to get worse over the next 10, 20 years, much of the billing of groups nowadays is government payer. So this mm-hmm. model is important if you're doing a lot of government payer because the reimbursement is much lower than, than private payer. The problem is, politically speaking, if you like, we see the anesthesiologists billing for their group with the CRNAs getting all the reimbursement. So this doesn't fit with what the ASA says about the anesthesiologist must be required to be involved in every anesthetic, which is their stance. The anesthesiologist should be involved in some way in every anesthetic across the country. But yet when we look at their billing codes, we see, wait a minute, the CRNA is billing 100% as a solo provider. So those two things don't jive together. So my belief is, if you look at the history, economically speaking, people will do what they need to do to maximize their income. So my belief is that we're going to see an increasing, either an increasing amount of QZ billing or a big, big push from ASA to change the regulations on medical direction that would make it looser for
0: them to supervise CRNAs and get the same level of reimbursement. Right. So a couple of questions about this. Can Mm -hmm. anesthesia groups that are practicing in states who have not opted out of the federal requirement uh, from Medicare to require CRNAs to have supervision, if you're in a state where that state has not opted out, Mm -hmm. can those groups still employ QZ billing?
1: Yes, they can. And, uh, for example, here in North Carolina, it's perfectly fine for an anesthesia group to do that. And I know of anesthesia groups that do do that. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether the state has opted out or not. They can still do it that way.
0: And so, so the impetus is you're going to have greater economic returns. If, if a group bills QZ that has anesthesiologists involved mm-hmm. in the care, right. uh, you'll, you'll make 100% reimbursement for the CRNA, but then that pay gets divided up as the group sees fit. Right. So the uh, anesthesiologists can, in fact, still employ CRNAs. Uh, they could be uh, the partners in the group, but then as the reimbursement comes in, as the funds come in, then that gets divided up are exactly. they see fit.
1: That's exactly right. Now, it does raise uh, one issue because we've seen a lot of transitioning over time between CRNAs being employed by hospitals, CRNAs being employed by physician groups, and that going backwards and forwards. Let's think about what's going to happen if the CRNA is employed by a hospital. So if, if a group decides to use QZ billing and then... For some reason, the CRNAs end up being employees of the hospital. Now the physician group has zero income because now the CRNA is doing all the billing, getting all the money, all the money is going to go to the hospital. So the only income the physicians would have would be if the hospital chose to give them that money back in the form of a stipend.
0: And that's if the the anesthesiologist group were independent of the hospital, but the CRNAs were employees of the hospital. Correct, exactly. So this model works well
1: for a private practice group employing their own CRNAs. It does not work well for a group, which we see, not uncommonly, a private group of physicians working with hospital-employed CRNAs. So when we see that model, a group of physicians, private group working with hospital-employed CRNAs, we will never see a QZ-type model Hmm. because they will not be able to generate enough income.
0: So they're left with either medical direction, which you have to follow the uh, TURFER rules or a medical supervision model Correct. in which they're ultimately not going to get as much reimbursement right. as you would under a medical direction. Correct. And medical direction is fine as
1: long as you have enough private practice payer mix in your group. So many groups, for example, a group I'm familiar with in this area operated around a 50% government pay mix perhaps 10 or 15 years ago and is now closer to a 70% government payer mix. So when you, as you start increasing your amount of government pay, the reimbursement is a fraction of the reimbursement from private pay. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be much more difficult to make that medical direction model work. When you have more private pay, you can operate on lower ratios. But historically, I think what we've seen is the trend is to more government pay. And perhaps with the Affordable Care Act, that's going to be even more the case over the next 10 or 20 years.
0: Right. So for some of the listeners, let's clarify quickly about the difference between direction and supervision as a term of reimbursement versus actual standard of care?
1: Right, so so yeah, that's a good question. And those terms are bandied around, you mentioned when we were talking beforehand, even on the ANA's website, sometimes there's some confusion between supervision in the legal sense, or, or in the general sense of the word, and supervision in the billing sense. So when I'm talking about supervision and direction, I'm usually talking about CMS regulation, Medicare, Requirements. So supervision would mean the type of billing that nobody wants to use, and direction would be the 50/50 split. And that's just a that's just a billing requirement. It doesn't have any reflection on on what the state allows for the CRNA to do. I'm pretty sure in every state in this country, a CRNA can work independently. It depends on the billing rules. Is a lot of time what restricts their practice. And that was the whole point of the opt out. The opt out allowed CRNAs to bill 100%, which they were doing anyway, under the supervision of a surgeon, but the opt-out allows them to bill 100% without supervision of any physician at all. So the thought was this would allow more flexibility for small rural hospitals to be able to tell the surgeon, you don't have to have any responsibility for this at all. The CRNA is working independently. You have no requirement to be involved in this anesthetic at all. Now, in the past, before opt-out, when surgeons were technically down as the supervisors of the anesthetic, the reality was, in the legal sense, they were never held responsible right. for any anesthesia complications. And that's been established time and time again. But it's frequently used as, as a, uh, a sticking point by ASA to surgeons that if you work with a CRNA without an anesthesiologist, you're going to be supervising this anesthetic. You're going to be responsible, even though the legal history is quite clear. The surgeon will not be held responsible for an anesthesia mistake or right. complication.
0: I think it's interesting that in states that have not opted out of the requirements uh, for Medicare reimbursement of services, CRNAs still have the opportunity to work in CRNA-only practices. Correct. But it mandates that you do get a co-signature on the anesthesia record for the reimbursement uh, to actually get funds for providing the anesthesia services. Correct. So, CRNAs can work independently, but they're getting that co-signature from a surgeon or another attending mm-hmm. physician that may not be an anesthesiologist. But you're delineating the historical context saying that in different court battles, no surgeon has been held accountable for a mistake that a CRNA That's has correct. made when they're working independently. That's correct. And I suspect a lot of this dates back to historical precedent. And if you
1: go back to the to the beginnings of anesthesia, when nurses were the dominant professional in anesthesia until really after the Second World War. Even then, they were still dominant numerically for a long time. But after the Second World War is when the physician anesthesiology specialty really took off. Uh, And until that time, even in the 20s and 30s, when physicians were pushing very, very hard to restrict anesthesia to physicians only... Surgeons were well aware that without nurses giving their anesthetic, they would not have enough providers. And plus, they had worked with nurses and, and seen that they were good providers of anesthesia. So surgeons pushed very hard to say, no, we're quite happy with the situation the way that it is in, in us supervising our nurses and letting them do the anesthetic for us. So there's a lot of historical background on that.
0: So things shifted there. So early on, a- anesthesiologists attempted to control the anesthesia market to say this should be a medical practice mm-hmm. but then the, the economic uh, changes happened in the 50s and 60s and so to talk right. a little bit about that when sure. did it become an incentive for anesthesiologists to employ CRNAs and, and to employ uh, lots of them
1: well what happened really basically was the the advent of health insurance so if you go back to before the Second World War There really wasn't any health insurance until the 20s and 30s when when Blue Cross and Blue Shield started up. Before that, payment for anesthesia services was either perhaps a a little kickback from the surgeon to the anesthesia provider, or perhaps the surgeon employed the anesthesia provider, or it would be a bill submitted after the hospital bill and the surgeon bill, and maybe it would get paid, perhaps. But definitely, if you look back at the historical records, it was not considered a good career, financially speaking, mm-hmm. for a physician. So there was very little interest in physicians being involved in it. After the Second World War, as you know, America had an economic boom in the 50s, and there was a huge increase in in the rise of employer sponsored insurance. And with insurance comes reimbursement. So then all of a sudden, something that really was pretty poorly reimbursed and pretty uh, low-salary job for an anesthesiologist, all of a sudden, became something that had potential income
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that was one thing just the income for the anesthesiologist practicing alone at that point there really wasn't much of a of a team model at all but what happened over kind of the 50s and 60s was that billing changed to allow physicians to be actually bill for nurse nurses, even when they were barely working with them even when they were barely even in the facility if they were just associated with them in a the facility they could bill for their services so that made it first of all they didn't have to even employ them the CRNA could be employed by the hospital and the physician could still receive reimbursement. Later down the line, once Medicare came in, then it became more tied to employment
0: per and, se. And they could they could bill for multiple cases concurrently. Correct. And
1: there was no limitation on that.
0: And so, so it became a very lucrative field to get into. Exactly. So
1: there was incentive, and as as especially with the advent of Medicare, the regulations on Medicare originally were not anywhere near as strict as they are today. There was a big incentive for a physician to be involved in a case... Or especially to have CRNAs that they employed
0: because then they could bill for their services.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and CRNA salary was extremely low at that mm-hmm. point.
0: And so how did, how did we get from that point to closer to where we are today?
1: I mentioned already that with the advent of health insurance, in particular with the advent of the Medicaid program in the late 60s, all of a sudden there was more of an incentive for physicians to employ CRNAs because they could make a lot of money out of employing CRNAs. CRNA salaries were relatively low and the regulations were fairly loose, so it was pretty easy for them to make a lot of money. So we saw a increase in that kind of employment practice. We also saw a big increase in the number of anesthesiologists being uh, generated from the schools. You mentioned that the number of anesthesiologists tripled from about the Second World War?
0: 1970s, uh, some some studies have shown this, 1970s to around the late 90s, that mm-hmm. anesthesiologist numbers tripled while CRNA growth was about 75%. So we saw a big increase in the number of anesthesiologists in the 60s
1: and 70s in particular, and we saw a big increase in the income of anesthesiologists. Anesthesiologists were making more money than surgeons in many cases, and a lot of that relates back to some very, very clever work that the ASA did around the advent of billing systems in which they were able to to link anesthesia billing with time units, something that no
0: other medical profession can do, which is a a huge plus. And so just to touch on that, other medical specialties, when they bill, they bill for the procedure no matter how long it takes. So if a surgeon's going to take out a gallbladder, you bill for that surgery, and it doesn't matter if it takes you 30 minutes or two hours, you're going to get right. the same reimbursement. Right. But an anesthesiologist, an anesthesia in general, CRAs yeah. included, yeah. Uh, can bill uh, four time units for how Correct. long a case goes.
1: Correct. And if you were to go back in billing, historically, billing was based on something called UCR, usual and customary, usual and customary reimbursement. Uh, and then there was a... A hunger from the billing administration, from health insurance companies said, that wait, this isn't really working because basically the UCR is set by the medical community in the area. We need something a little bit more standard to develop. So there was a lot of change uh 60s, 70s towards more of a, a relative value system, which looked at comparing work done by different physicians, comparing what was required to do a given procedure or a patient interview and trying to match them up and make a fair system of pay nationally. The ASA, which actually came from the CSA, the California Society, had already developed their own system, which is basically the same system we use today, a system of a certain number of units for acuity, and then a system that pays a unit per 15 minutes of time reimbursed. So this system was already fairly well developed by the anesthesiologists who were pretty much ahead of the curve in terms of developing a system that wasn't based on on UCR. And they were allowed to keep this system, even though the surgeons have said many times, wait a minute, We don't know when we go do a gallbladder, to cite your example, if it's going to take us 20 minutes or it's going to take us three hours. Mm -hmm. Um, We get paid the same amount of money regardless, to which the anesthesia response, and this could be a a nurse anesthetist working independently as well, has been, well, I, I don't have control over my work situation. It's based on what the surgeon does, so therefore I should be paid for the time. Right. The surgeon might argue, I don't have control over the individual anatomy. (laughs) I, I should get paid for that too. But that's the system we have, and that's the system that we're continuing to use. So anyway, so there was increased reimbursement or increased, let's say, revenue generated by the increased employment of CRNAs. And so anesthesia became an attractive profession. There was a huge influx of medical students into anesthesia residencies. This is a job that has relatively low call; It gets good reimbursement. Uh, it's not a huge long residency, as long as surgery or cardiac surgery, for example. So it was a good career choice. And so we saw a huge increase in the number of anesthesia, anesthesiologists. And perhaps I don't know if it's a result of that, but one would certainly think it's tied to it. There was all of a sudden an increase in political rhetoric in the seventies and eighties of, wait a minute, we are the physician specialty specialists in this procedure. This is not something that should be done by nurses we're gonna really push to develop our control of this profession. Right. So the, the way that was sort of uh, enacted was by a lot of pressure being put on medical schools who were affiliated with nurse anesthesia training programs to not train nurse anesthetists anymore. And we saw a big drop in the number of nurse anesthesia programs across the country during the 70s and 80s in particular. And so there was a push, there was a drop in the number of CRNAs, and we saw over the 80s a significant drop in the number of nurse anesthesia students that graduated, which didn't matter at that point because we had a big increase in the number of anesthesia residents, number of anesthesiologists. Uh, We started to see an increase in the number of anesthesiologists-only practices when they didn't have CRNAs, and they just did their own anesthetics as well. So that was compensated for by the increase in the number of MDs. But unfortunately in the 90s, we reached, if you like, critical mass of this situation. I think a variety of factors w- went to cause that. Part of it was change in the way reimbursement was done. It was a change from a maximum payment of 120% to 100% for all providers on a case. Part of it was to do the economic situation. There was a kind of a slump going on, economically speaking, in the early 90s, the early part of the Clinton administration. And perhaps the biggest factor and I uh, feel for this because I was in anesthesia school at this point, was the threatened advent of the Clinton health reforms. At this point, people really weren't sure what was going to happen, whether there was going to be a change to maybe more of a salary position, more of a nationalized system in which reimbursement wouldn't be as good. And I remember very well being at a, uh, a, a conference Back in the mid-90s and seeing Dr. Miller from UC San Francisco putting up a graph showing the number of residents going into anesthesia school, and it looked like it just fell off a cliff right about that time. So all of a sudden, we had a bunch of programs that were having no problem matching, had plenty of students. All of a sudden, they couldn't match enough students. Right. And they couldn't get enough anesthesiology residents. So we saw a dramatic change in the labor market. It suddenly got very tight. People wanted to stay in their position. They wanted to stay where they were. They didn't want to do locums. They didn't want to move around. And we saw a dramatic drop in the output of anesthesiology residents. We'd already seen a drop in the number of CRNA programs over the years. So as always happens in economics, supply and demand, what happened by the end of the 90s was there was a huge labor shortage. Right. All of a sudden, there was a big demand for CRNAs because there weren't enough residences. A lot of medical schools that had been using residents to run their ORs, now were having to look for CRNAs to fill those slots. And this happened at many places across the country. There was a big demand for CRNAs and not enough CRNA schools to provide that demand. So we saw an increase in the number of of CRNA schools. At that point in the 90s, that was the time when all of a sudden there was a, a wide open labor market. CRNA salaries started to increase dramatically because there was such a shortage and we saw a big increase in the number of CRNA programs. Over the course of the last 10 to 15 years, as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the biggest things that we've seen that's, that's having a big impact is the dramatic increase in the amount of government paid reimbursement. Government paid reimbursement is probably a fraction on the dollar, perhaps 25% on the dollar to what you'd receive from private pay. Uh-huh. When you start getting more, more and more government pay in your payer mix as a group, you're gonna to have to find a way of increasing your revenue. How do we increase revenue, typically speaking, when reimbursement drops? It's by volume. So we can't necessarily increase the number of cases we do, but if we increase the number of cases that are done by nurse anesthetists who are, of course, lower salaried, then overall we're going to be better off. So we see this push to increase the number of nurse anesthetists that are supervised, directed by by physicians in order to, to maintain their group revenue. But they've, then they run up against this brick wall of the TEFRA regulation, uh, wait a minute, I can only direct four people, and I can only get limited revenue from directing four people. And even when I direct four people, then I find myself in potential trouble from getting audited from CMS right. because they can see. And uh, you recall a big paper in anesthesiology in the last few years, it showed that Anesthesiologists could not be present at induction in a typical scenario. Right, I and think no exactly,
0: supervising I think one about to three. thirty percent compliance with the yeah. rules, yeah.
1: So then they had to look for an alternative. And as I said at the beginning, I think what's going to happen more and more is the alternative to maintain reimbursement is going to be QZ billing.
0: That's interesting, and, and I think one of the other twists of the story in the last fifteen years has been the advent of the opt-out option.
1: And it was it was interesting how. That all happened as well. So just to clarify, just for historical reasons, a little bit. So the Clinton, when Clinton came into office, it was the hope of a and for the entire period of his two terms that he was going to be friendly to nurse anesthetists and write a regulation that would free us of physician supervision requirements since, w- his, since his mother was a nurse anesthetist. Right. And that never came to pass. Uh, and then in the, the waning days of the administration, they issued this rule that nurse anesthetists could practice without physician supervision. In any state, uh, that rule was suspended by the Bush administration as soon as they came into power. Said we're not going to allow that. We're going to think about it, and then the final rule that came out, I think it was in about November of the year, the of Bush's inaugural year, said that we will allow that if the states choose to opt out. And what's interesting, I think, about that is at the time. Um, many of us in the ANA thought this was a, a really bad decision and it was going to go nowhere and we would never see this rule enacted. But actually what's happened is many states have realized, wait, this is a good This is a good thing for our state. And the reason it's a good thing is because it makes sense economically because it allows rural hospitals to employ and use nurses and more easily, mm-hmm. who are mostly the providers anyway in rural hospitals. So something that initially looked like it wasn't going to be a good thing it's actually turned out fairly well for nurse and that's overall with 17 states opting out. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as well as it could have been if, if the original rule had been left in place, but anyway. Yeah. So, there
0: have been a lot of studies that have been done to try to show a quality difference between anesthesia providers in the United States. What are some of the confounding variables in relation to these studies? I guess we could, we could mention right off the bat the Cochrane review that came out this last year. 2014 that said, quote, that it was not possible to say whether there was any difference in care between medically qualified anesthetist and nurse anesthetist from the available evidence. So they did this big study, I think there were uh, six non-randomized control trials because there weren't randomized control trials to look at incorporating 1.5 million participants that, that had looked at quality data related to anesthesia care providers. And they just couldn't say definitively, there's a difference between providers. And uh, there are a lot of reasons for that. What, what are some of those reasons?
1: Well, I think the most important thing that we have to remember when we look at this quality debate is that we're essentially we're a victim of our own success. I mean, anesthesia is incredibly safe nowadays. It's extremely rare for there to be a significant complication after an anesthetic. And when you compare that to back in the 50s when Beecher did his work on, on postoperative outcomes and we saw some horrifying statistics on mortality, now we're looking at tiny, tiny numbers. So when we look at tiny numbers for mortality, which is always the kind of the gold standard of perioperative complications, it's very, very hard to show a difference between two groups. You need enormous numbers to do that. And, and back in the 80s, when the CDC was considering doing a randomized control study, comparing nurse anesthetists and physicians, they basically said, this is a pointless exercise because the differences are so tiny, we're not going to be able to, to see anything. Mm-hmm. So mortality is a really difficult uh, really difficult thing to show a difference between. And when we talk about complications, it's sometimes it's hard to establish exactly what is a complication from an anesthetic. So that's been another problem with the data that and the studies that have been done over the last 10,
0: 15 years. Is, Which gets is, back to some of your research in, yeah, with your dissertation. That right, you're so
1: on. we're trying, so trying to figure out what actually is an anesthesia complication. What can we really attribute to the anesthesia provider as their responsibility that they impacted the perioperative period. And for example, if you look at um, Delise and Cromwell's article in Health Affairs back in 2010, which is frequently cited by ANA, they looked at surgical mortality as one of their outcomes. And, and, and physicians may say surgical mortality is not a very good indicator of anesthesia because surgical mortality is related to many, many other things apart from the way the anesthesia is run. It's, a lot of it is related to the condition of the patient, It's also related to the type of surgery. It's also related to the the surgeon themselves who's doing the operation. So it's tough to really pin that down to the anesthesia provider per se. The ASA, to their credit, is doing some very nice work with the AQI, Anesthesia Quality Institute, in trying to really nail down more closely what are anesthesia complications and what are our rates of anesthesia complications. And this uh, institute, I think when it started off, to me was a little weak because it it, it used mostly qi data that we've many of us have come across in our workplace which is very subject to the vagaries of of individual providers choosing to code something one way or another for example uh, in one area i practiced there was a question after the anesthetic was this patient a difficult intubation yes no so that's really up to me whether I, first of all, want to admit that the patient was a difficult intubation. Do I remember that the patient was a difficult intubation? Was I the provider there when the, when the, when the case started? So there are many, many factors that may cause that, that QI data to be unreliable mm-hmm. when it's pulled together. But I believe that more recently, the QI has been trying to look you know, a little bit more at actual outcomes from chart data as well, which is perhaps a little bit more reliable. There are also groups like the University of Michigan as the MPOG, a perioperative outcomes group that's pulling data from multiple institutions across the country and trying to figure out how we can look at perioperative complications and what we can attribute to anesthesia. So I think there's it's a developing field. There's a lot of work still to be done in it. It's very, very hard to establish a difference. Another problem that we have um, with some of the literature from nurse anesthesia is that typically we use Medicare data and that's what I've been looking at from my dissertation when we use Medicare data, we use the billing codes to sort out the different providers one from the other. And as we talked about for at length during this discussion, the QZ code is typically means a CRNA working alone, but it may mean a CRNA working in a team environment that has just chosen to bill that way right. for a billing convenience. When you look at studies again, I'm just I'm not picking on on delise, but it just happens to be one of the most recent studies. So they take QZ and they say that is nurse anesthetist working alone. We're going to compare that with teams, medically directed teams. But it may not be nurse anesthetist working alone. It may be nurse anesthetist working in a team environment. So we're not really comparing what we think we're comparing with a a direction. So that's a problem too. Um, Another problem that we have is that we know CRNAs are involved in many, many anesthetics across the country. But we know as independent providers, typically speaking, The all-CRNA group is probably going to be in a smaller rural hospital. We know in those hospitals, they can take care of very sick patients, no question about that. But many of their patients who are sick for elective surgery will get referred to a tertiary center, to another bigger center. Or another thing we have to think about in small hospitals is what about the acuity of surgery? So is a small rural hospital going to be doing a AAA? Most likely not, because mm-hmm. it's not, they're not really equipped for that kind of surgery, not just the surgery itself, but the recovery after the surgery. That surgery is going to go to a big hospital. Is a small hospital going to take care of a, a big multi-system trauma patient that's unstable and maybe require transfusion and careful management? Most likely not. That's just, that patient's probably going to go to a big center. Right. So once these patients start going to these bigger centers in a more urban environment, it's less likely that they're going to be in an anesthesia, uh, sorry, an all-CRNA provider model. They're most likely gonna be in a more of a team model or perhaps an anesthesiologist alone, less common, most likely a team model. So if we want to compare outcomes, the worst outcomes are most likely gonna be with the sickest patients or the most difficult surgeries. So we would really like to look at the most difficult surgeries or the sickest patients, but we can't compare a small rural hospital with its relatively low acuity patient, relatively low complexity surgery, with a big hospital, with very complex and difficult surgeries, and perhaps sicker patients. And I want to be clear: I'm not saying that small hospitals <laughs> only take care of, of uh, super healthy people. I'm, I worked in a small hospital; I'm all very well aware. People come in poorly prepared for surgery and bad medical condition. There can be right. some pretty unhealthy people having surgery in a small hospital. But um, so we're trying to compare things we can't really compare. So what what researchers have done? in order to try to do that is they use propensity scoring or they use case control methods to try to pick out the cases that are the same between the two groups and compare those cases so for example we could say okay well this case does all lots of gallbladders or lots of asa2s we can compare those cases with the cases in the big hospital and see what the outcomes are there so we can compare some stuff but we can't compare everything the same uh, and that makes it more difficult. And, I, and that's. It's kind of a primitive example. It may not be a best sure. example, but in general terms, it's hard to compare a big center with a small center. And consequently, it's hard to compare CRNAs working alone with
0: CRNAs working in a team care model. Right. So all of these variables, uh, the fact that anesthesia is very safe to begin with, mm-hmm. the fact that if you want to compare The quality difference between providers, they work in different settings with different kinds of patients. The the bias in interpreting the data, the data not being very good to begin with, it being hard to access depending on how it was reported and gathered. So all of these things kind of confound the task of trying to develop or determine in the literature, is there a quality difference between anesthesia Mm -hmm. providers? Exactly. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah, hence the the, uh, the Cochrane's yeah. review that they right. basically said, you know, we can't we can't determine. Yeah. So they
1: didn't say there was no difference. They said we can't say. Right. We can't determine if there's a difference. And I think that's going to continue to be a problem. And and it may be a red herring to be constantly chasing that down. Which we is a question that, I wanted to ask. Should yeah.
0: should we be focusing on you know, both the American Society of Anesthesiologists and the American Association of Nurse Anesthetists? Both organizations have put a lot of money and a lot of time. Um, into looking and and arguing about the quality difference Mm -hmm. between providers. Should we? Should we be putting resources there? Should we say, you know, anesthesia is very safe. Uh, Both of these professionals are here. By and large, they're here to stay. There's about equal numbers of both sets Mm -hmm. of professionals. Could we be putting research dollars into other other places?
1: I think possibly, yes. (laughs) That's a difficult question to answer because there's so much invested, as you pointed out, at the beginning from both professional groups. But I think the reality is we are facing a shrinking pie in healthcare dollars. There is not going to be as much money available in the future. It's only going to get worse. So in that context, we have to think about how can we deliver this service more efficiently to the American people? So what can we do to make this a more cost-effective method? So are we going to see all and nurses working 100% of facilities across the United States with no physician anesthesiologist i don't think so I, I don't think that's realistic are we going to see all physician anesthetists with no nurse anesthetists working across the united states no i don't think that's realistic either it would be prohibitively expensive so what so what do we want to do we want to think about okay this team model is useful it seems to work well but do we really need to have one anesthesiologist supervising two crnas in every situation I mean, if this is a healthy population with a low acuity surgery, why do I need to have this kind of intensive supervision or direction, if you want to call it that? So I think we need to look, what we need to look at in the future going forward is recognizing what different professions bring to the table and looking at a more efficient way to deliver that care. And I think the way forward for that is a more loosely supervised version of the anesthesia care team.
0: So, that, one in which incorporates QZ billing in an agency care team model. So you bill QZ, it frees you from the TURFA requirements. Uh, you still get 100% of the reimbursement mm-hmm. that, that you're seeking from Medicare and Medicaid, and then you're able to determine what you want to do with those funds as part of your group.
1: Exactly. I mean, really, the QZ billing, it's just a way that people are using the system now to generate the most income with the maximum flexibility, Um We know like from MGMA, which is the main billing association for physicians, we know that a typical ratio for physician CRNA groups would be in the the order of 1 to 2.5. So 1 to 2.5 CRNAs versus a loosely supervised group might be more in the order of 1 to to 3.5 or 4 or or maybe even 4.5. So what does that mean? It means the overall cost of that group is much lower because then you're only paying for one physician's salary versus for every three CRNAs versus one for every two CRNAs. So that that has significant impact to our overall national healthcare bill. It doesn't have any impact to the patient. The patient pays the same charge. It doesn't matter whether John is doing your anesthetic alone or John's doing it with a the physician, they pay the same amount of money regardless. But right. we're talking about overall cost to the system. And if you look at the system in general terms, what's going on with physicians in particular nationally, We've seen a dramatic increase in the number of physicians who are choosing employment situations rather than forming their own practice. I believe the numbers are over 50% now of physicians choosing employment versus working in their own practice in their own group.
0: And you mean employment by a hospital? It could be a hospital.
1: It could be a a group. Um, In anesthesia, we know of um, American anesthesia is one of the big groups. So it could be a group like that that's not affiliated with one particular hospital. Or it could be like a Kaiser Permanente type model when they're salaried by a hospital. But they're choosing that kind of model in general anyway. And once you go to a salary kind of model in which the institution pays the salary of the physician and the nurse anesthetist, the more efficiently they can deliver that service, the better it's gonna be for that group. Because they, they're getting the same reimbursement regardless of how many people are involved in the care. Right. So that's more efficient. And I'm not talking about increasing profits so much as staying alive. Because mm-hmm. the way the healthcare dollar is now People are going to be struggling to keep their heads above water with current salaries if reimbursement continues to to drift more and more towards government pay.
0: So what's your recommendation for uh, CRNAs and, and student anesthetists? How do we get educated? How do we get involved in shaping this side of our practice?
1: Well, I think that it's important that people understand the difference between the different modes of billing. A lot of people don't understand that. Hopefully today people will be a little clearer. But I think it's very important people understand that. And I think it's also important that they understand if they work in a team care practice, what kind of system am I working under? And many people don't know that. Uh, and there may be reasons why their employer may not want to tell them that. But it makes a difference when you realize, OK, I'm actually doing the work here. My service is being billed at 100 percent, but I'm not making as much money as the person that's employing me. Can that situation never be OK? No, it, it can be OK. But I think it just empowers people to understand the kind of billing situation they're working in.
0: What would you say, yeah. to, what would you say to CRNAs out there? Because I, I know that many, many CRNAs didn't get into anesthesia to understand really the business side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, what kinds of things can we do to get involved or at least get educated about that process?
1: Well, not surprising for an educator, I'd say. People need to read. They need to read a lot. So read read the ANA Journal, but also read the lay press. I mean, I like to read the New York Times. Read whatever paper you like that's a good quality paper and see what's going on in the healthcare field in general because you'll learn a lot about mm-hmm. what's coming down the pike. You know, we talked about the trend towards employment. That's something that we're seeing. You know, we'll see that with nurse nurses too, potentially in the future. If you see these trends coming, you'll be better prepared than when somebody knocks on your door one day and says, you can either become a hospital employee or you can leave. Right. So you can think about that and decide, is that something I want to do or is that something I, I need to move on? So understand what's happening in trends and what might be coming down the road for you in the future so you so you'll be better prepared when it happens mm-hmm. to you. I think just understanding general principles of billing is a good idea. I don't think the details of how to bill are important sure. for most people unless you're working in an independent practice. But I think even even understanding how much money is generated by particular kinds of cases and particular kinds of procedures are important. Maybe you were thinking that the anesthesiologists in your group don't want you doing epidurals because they want to restrict your practice. But maybe they're just doing it because they want to keep the billing for themselves. You work for the hospital, they work for, the, for themselves. If they let you do the epidurals, they lose that billing. So understanding how billing works in that sense where the money's being generated, where the revenue's being generated, can help you understand why the practice is the way it is in your local area. So I think that's important as well.
0: Right. How do you think the change from CRNAs being master's prepared anesthetists to doctorally trained providers? How do you think it's going to shape the business and economic side of things? One thing's for sure is people will have a better understanding of the healthcare
1: policy and economics, I think, from going through this kind of program. At Western, we haven't really started our Doctoral program, we just have it for postmaster students. But I I think a better understanding of policy and what's happening in healthcare in general will help understand some of the things that we've talked about already. So that's one point. I think another thing with the doctoral prepared anesthesia potentially is the capstone project, which there's a lot of emphasis on on making change in the in your workplace or your education place. I think perhaps that emphasis will help people to do something concrete. How can they affect change in their institution? And that may, when they come out of the program, allow them to be more involved and more effective as representatives of their profession and and agents of change. I think there's potential for improvement. Does it mean there's going to be a big step change in the administration of anesthesia? Uh, I don't think so necessarily any more than there was when the the master's level preparation was was started. Mm -hmm. But more education does allow you to understand better what's going on in the broader picture. Not just like what happens in the OR, but what happens outside the OR. And I don't just mean politically speaking. I mean in the perioperative period, Right. what's happening to patients then. So hopefully it will
0: be a good thing. Good. All right. Well, Ian Hewer, thank you so much for joining us today to chat about a fascinating topic that we could spend multiple shows on and and really delve into the depths of. So I hope that this has been beneficial for listeners to understand a little bit more about billing codes and how anesthesia care in the United States came to be what it is today in its different forms. Thanks
1: for having me. I enjoyed
0: it. Hey y'all, John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of anesthesia guidebook on Apple podcast, your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.